I've been wanting to tell this story. Some of you have heard this before. But I read recently about a, a young boy who uh, early, in the early 1900s grew up on a, on a farm out in rural Colorado. And because it was a, a rural area, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So you know that that means that they had an outhouse on their property. And this young man learned to hate the outhouse, absolutely hate it. It was always hot in the summer. It was cold in the winter. It was inconvenient at night. And it always stunk. There wasn't um, more, there were more than one time when he really was tempted just to, to push that outhouse over into the creek that ran right behind where the outhouse was and then walk away. Well, one day this young man was in a particularly foul mood. He didn't have any patience for anything. And as he walked down the path towards the outhouse, he took one look at it and gave it a big heave into the creek. Well, that night, his dad, uh, as they were gathering around the dinner table, his dad said, son, uh, you and I, before we have dinner, have a meeting out at the woodshed. The young man knew what was happening, and he knew why it was going to be happening. And so as they're walking out, he said to his dad, he said, dad, why do we have to go to the woodshed? What, what happened? His dad says, well, you know, Somebody pushed the, wood, or the, the outhouse in, into the, the creek, and I have a sneaky suspicion that you had something to do with that. Well, the young man decided, you know, I'm going to take the high road here. And so he said, Dad, I'll confess I, I did it. I thought so, his dad said. They was silent for a little bit longer as they're walking out towards the woodshed, and the young man says, you know, Dad, when George Washington told the truth when he cut down the cherry tree, he, he didn't get punished. His dad stopped for a moment and thought, and he said, you know, son, you're right. But I suspect his dad wasn't sitting in the cherry tree when he cut it down. <laughs> Sometimes being a parent isn't easy, is it? Sometimes it's really difficult and it tests our patience. Sometimes we have to do things that we don't like to do. As you all know, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Every Parent's Jerusalem where we're talking about witnessing to our children. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we're trying to convey to you in this sermon series is that many times our ministry, our witnessing begins in the home. And as Pastor Dave said last week, sometimes it is just straight across the hall as we witness to our children. And today we're going to be talking about how prayer fits into this whole idea of witnessing to children. But I don't want anybody to get the idea that we're just talking to parents here today. Because many of us don't have children at home any longer. Some of us, are parent, our children have grown up and moved away. Some of us haven't had children yet. Some of us are not um, our grandparents. But all of us will have an opportunity to witness to children at some point in our life, right? And that, wit that witness, that opportunity to witness to children... It's for everybody. Because, you know, we live in communities, don't we? We live in neighborhoods. We, we live with other people that, that have children. Some of you go to school with other children, right? 
And so we all have the opportunity to pray. Well, in our text today, we see Jesus, and He's in church. The, the verses just prior to the ones that we just read, the gospel reading, we see Jesus in the synagogue, His place of worship. And now let me set the scene for you a little bit. This particular Saturday, this Sabbath day, when Jesus was in church, He's preaching and talking to the people. But just the day before, Jesus had done something magnificent. He had done a miracle that, that was beyond comprehension. Across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had stood on a side of a mountain, and people had gathered around. They say that there were 5,000 men that were there, not counting their wives and their children. And Jesus, knowing that they were getting hungry at the end of the day, decided He was going to feed them. And with just a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two little fish, a boy's sandwich supper, he fed all 5,000, and there were leftovers left over. The people were impressed, and so much so that they wanted to make him king, and Jesus knew that they wanted to make him king, and so he kind of quietly withdrew. And then that night, he and his disciples got in boats and went across the Sea of Galilee to a city called Capernaum. And the next day, the Sabbath day, the crowd started to gather again. They had followed him around the, the Sea of Galilee, and many of the same faces and the many of the same uh, people were right there in the crowd. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you have come not because you have seen signs, but because you want more loaves. In other words, what he was doing is calling their bluff. He's saying, you came today not because you believe that I'm the Messiah, not because you believe that I'm God, you came because you want a free handout again. And then he said to something like this, be careful that you don't set your sights on this earthly kind of bread, but set your sights on the living bread. And let me read to you what he said to them exactly. He said to them, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And as he finished, the disciples were looking at him in silence, and they were going, what? This is a hard saying. Who can believe this? Feeding on Jesus' flesh? And we're told that people started to leave, that they couldn't handle it, and they quit following him. And then Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and he said to them, are you going to leave too? And Peter looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the question that I want to talk about today with you. Lord, to whom shall we go? Because the fact is, folks, when there's a little 
two-year-old child with 105 fever, laying in bed tired and feverish. To whom shall we go? Of course we take that child to the Lord in prayer. When we hear about a child with a deadly illness and it's plastered on, on Facebook and, and prayer chains, when a child is injured or hurt, to whom shall we go? We gather together as God's people and we pray for that child, don't we? And when another child, <coughs> somebody that we know, it might be a relative, it might be a friend, it might be a classmate, and we see them starting to do the things that we know that they really shouldn't do, following the crowd that they shouldn't follow, doing the things that they shouldn't do, we take them to the Lord in prayer, right? And when we drop our child off at the college and we see them walking off on their own and we know that our influence on them has diminished to the point where they're going out on their own and hopefully all that we've taught them will stick with them. Lord, to whom shall we go? We lift them up in prayer and we never stop praying, do we? And when someone we know is walking away from the faith... When a child that we know, whether they're a child, a young child, or, or an adult child, and they start rejecting the things of God, and they start following after other things that this world would like us to believe are truths, Lord, to whom shall we go? Of course we take it to the Lord in prayer. I would venture to say that there isn't a person sitting in this room that hasn't gone to the Lord in prayer for a child, right? Right? And why do we take these children to the Lord in prayer? Why do we pray for them? Because we know that this Lord that we're praying to is the Lord of life. He's the one that has the words of eternal life. He's the one that, that started life by saying, let there be. Breathing his life into us. He's the one who came again from heaven when we introduced sin and death to this world, he came down and he walked and he lived life with us. And then he gave his life for us. And then he rose again so that we might have life with him forever. He has the words of eternal life. That's why we go to him, right? Because we know that we have the power of God at our disposal because of what he has done for us, right? Where else would we go? But I think there's another dimension to this whole idea of praying and children. I think it's not only important for us to pray for our children, but to, to pray with our children. Because as we pray with our children, what we're doing is we're helping them to know this God who has eternal life. So that when they encounter difficult times in their lives that they know right away where it is to turn. To whom else shall they go? We go to the God who has eternal life. I had a friend this week that told me a story about when he was a child. He said, you know, we always prayed in our home. We had devotions. We prayed when we sat down to meals. We prayed when we got up. We prayed each evening as we had family devotions, and at the end of the, the devotion there would be a prayer. We would read that. And then when we would finish that, we would say the Lord's Prayer. And there were bedtime prayers. 
But he said, you know, I never knew that my parents prayed for me. Until one night when I was walking down the hall, I overheard my parents praying in their bedroom behind closed doors for me. And he said, you know, I was really moved by that. I never thought that my parents would pray for me, but you know, I really wished that they would have also prayed for me with me. So as I was thinking about that, I, I thought, you know, there, as I look back on my life, I was thinking about those people who prayed with me. And some of the lessons that I learned as I thought about those people that prayed with me. And if it would be okay with you, I'd, I'd like to ask you to indulge me and let me share with you a few of my life's experience. Now, don't get me wrong. My family isn't perfect. My family is just like your family. Somebody told me a while back, I, Tim, I know why the Lord gave you children. So you have illustrations for your Bible classes. And now for sermons. I'm, I'm sorry. But, you know, I want to tell you sort of a few of the lessons that I learned. The first lesson I'd like to share with you is that there is value in rote prayers and prayer rituals. There's value in that. Because with those rituals comes a habit. And with habit comes a lifestyle. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. We have our oldest daughter and her husband and, grandson, and our grandson living with us right now. They're in between houses. And so at nighttime, we get to the opportunity to listen to them pray with their, their son. Now, he's only 10 months old, and they have this ritual every night. You know, they get him dressed for bed, all washed up and clean. They sit down, they read a couple storybooks with him, and then they open up a devotion book, and they read out of his children's Bible. I'll guarantee you, he's not really soaking it in, but it's a habit that he's learning, right? And then they have this, these prayers. It starts with a song prayer, and then a spoken prayer, and then another song prayer. And they're creating this habit with our grandson. And I started thinking about this the other night. Where did they learn this? Where did my daughter and our son-in-law learn this? Well, they learned it from their parents. Those are the exact same prayers that we spoke with our children when they were children, when they were babies. And they were the same prayers that our son-in-law's parents prayed with him. And where do we learn it? Well, we learned it from my parents and from his grandparents, our son-in-law's grandparents. From generation to generation to generation, this habit, this ritual of prayer has gone on. And every generation now, when there's a trial or a tribulation in our lives, where do we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? To this God. The second thing I learned was that anyone can pray. As we, as we grew older, this ritual would change. And we started praying these uh, prayers, and, and each evening our parents would say to us, um, Tim, um, it's your turn to pray tonight, or Ruth, it's your turn to pray tonight. And then we would do these, what we call Dear Jesus prayers. And you know what I'm talking about, because we do it every week in the children's message, where the leader says, Dear Jesus, and everybody else says... Dear Jesus, and then we go on. That's how we learn how to pray. And I learned that anyone can pray. I also learned that we can pray anytime. When I first started in ministry, I got a call to Gloria Christie Lutheran Church up in Greeley. 
And part of our fellowship activities were, was this dinner club where we would be paired up with or you know, teamed up with several other couples for a fellowship meal. We were hosting one at our home. And the ones that were, we were assigned to invite included two pastors and their wives and a rancher and his wife. So we had two pastors, a DCE, their wives, and then a rancher and his wife. One of the pastors got a phone call at the beginning of the meal and got the message that somebody from our congregation was deathly ill. And one of the other pastors said, you know, we're going to have to keep that person in prayer. And the rancher spoke up and he said, let's pray right now. And he bowed his head and Mr. Meerhead led two pastors in the DCE and our wives and his wife in prayer. We don't have to wait for the pastor. I know this may affect your view of me, but I don't have a direct line to God any more than you do. We all have a direct line to God, and every single one of us can pray, and we pray just as though we're talking to our father or our mother. The next thing that I learned is that we can pray about anything, anytime. When I was in high school, I, I worked on a lawn crew for Lutheran High School. And this, the first year that I worked there, our job was to get the lawns back in order. There had been a big um, building project. It included the track. So the football field was a mess. The grass, the lawns around the buildings were a mess. And so we were to prepare the ground, plant the seed, and water by hand, hour after hour, this grass until it grew. And one particular day, we were preparing this one patch that we had left toward the end, and it was on this steep hill. And I was working with a, a teacher by the name of Mr. Lightfoot, Mr. Bob Lightfoot. And we were working on this and getting it all ready. And I, I expressed some doubt that this grass would grow on this hill because it was rather steep. And I thought, yeah, we can get it all prepared. We're going to plant the grass seed. And, you know, we're going to start watering and it's just going to wash down. And he said, well, why don't we pray about that? And with that, he put his rake down, he bowed his head, and he prayed that the Lord would bless our work and that he would allow that grass seed to take root. And guess what it did? We have a God who is a God of eternal life who is also concerned about our life, every little detail of it. We can take anything to the Lord in prayer. I also learned that anyone can pray. Or we could pray about any or pray about anyone. One day when we were going to, to school, we were driving our kids to school, we were pulled over because uh, an ambulance and a fire truck went by. And I don't remember who in our family said it, but it's one of one person said, you know, I, I hope that whoever those paramedics and firefighters are going to help is okay. And then somebody else said, Well, then maybe we should pray for them. That's become a ritual in my family. When a, a fire, fire truck or a police officer or an EMT, a paramedic goes by, we say a quick prayer that they would be faithful and diligent in their duties and they would do well, but also that the victims that they were going to serve would be okay. We can pray for anyone, whether we know them or not, and anyone can pray. And then finally, I learned that Prayer is a commitment. We don't just pray and then not act. One day I was studying in my room. I had this particularly difficult physics test coming up. 
my dad stuck his head in my room and he said, Tim, are you doing okay? And I said, yeah. And I expressed to him how concerned I was about this test and the fact that my grade, the one that I really wanted for this college scholarship that I was working toward, was all hinging upon how I did on this particular test. And my dad sat down on my bed next to my desk and he said, let's pray. And, and we prayed about that. And then we got up and my dad kind of smacked me on the back as he's walking out and he says, okay, now get back to studying. We just prayed as though everything depended upon God, and now it's time to get to work as though everything depends upon us. We don't just ask the Lord, hey, help me with my math test, and then go watch television. It's a commitment. Folks, it's important not only that we pray for our children, but that we pray with our children. And why? So that in the end... When we're no longer around our children and they are faced with trials and tribulations, that they will also say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Of course I go to my God. Because of all that I've learned as people have been praying with me. But there's one more thing I'd like to share with you. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray. And it doesn't seem like God is answering that prayer, right? We have this prayer, and we know it's a godly prayer. And yet it just doesn't seem like God is, is really listening, or He's certainly not answering the way that we think that He should. Because we're praying, after all, for something that's God-pleasing, an older gentleman that I knew that was very near and dear to me years ago, we were sitting down and he had cancer and he was getting towards the end of his life and he said, you know, Tim, I've been praying for years that my son and his family would go back to church. Isn't that a godly prayer? Don't you think that God wants that? And I've been praying that he would do that. But it's not looking like I'm going to be able to see that in my lifetime. And sure enough, a few months later, that gentleman passed away. But two weeks after he passed away, his son went back to church. And I can tell you that his son is still going to church now, about 25 years later. Folks, we have a God who has the words of eternal life. We have this earthly perspective we want God to do things in our time, our time on this earth. But just because he doesn't answer the prayers during our lifetime doesn't mean that he doesn't answer them the way that we want him to. Because Lord did answer that man's prayer. Our God has an eternal perspective. So here's what I want you to take home today. Number one, we pray for our children. Why? Because who else are we going to pray to? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the all-powerful God. And when we pray, we're, we have power at our, at our disposal. The power of the Almighty God who gives life. We pray with our children. Why? Because we want them, too, to have that at their disposal. So that when they go through difficult times, or joyful times for that matter, they know where they can go. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we pray 
without ceasing. Because we know that we have a God who's an eternal God. And what He does lasts forever. So folks, why don't we close our, with a prayer? Can you join me? Dear Jesus, we thank you that you give us the opportunity and the privilege to come to you in prayer. Please help us to have a heart for your children. Pray for them, to pray with them, and to never stop. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.